0: shelly miscavige she has not appeared in public since 2005 Where's shelly and what happened where is Shelley? we're looking at like 17 years of a person just missing
1: shelly miscavige was given into the sole care of l ron hubbard by her parents
0: when she was 12 this is where shelly is believed to be being held
1: captive Do you believe that Shelley Miscavige is a threat today? Oh, absolutely. She's seen it all. She's been by his side the whole time.
0: Welcome back to the channel. I'm your host for today, Claire Headley. And this is my next episode in my series of Where is Shelly Miscavige, in which I have been delving deep into the life of Shelley, learning so much about her along the, the way by speaking with those who knew and worked with her personally. Um, for today, this is part two with my dear friend and my special guest for today, Karen Schles Presley.
1: Hello, Karen. Hey, Claire, it's good to be back with you now for our part two.
0: Yes, amazing. We had such amazing feedback from part one. Uh, Your stories are just incredible. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this with me and and engaging in this uh, path. I've set out for myself of learning everything about Shelly Miscavige that we possibly can.
1: Yeah, you created an amazing path. And uh I find it just incredible the number of people that have gone on this path with you. <laughs> um, the number of comments and viewers from our part one. I'm I'm really humbled by those comments and really appreciate people's in-depth comments, you know, talking about how we discuss. You know, just looking for people's humanity and discussing the real personal side of of sea org life that is kind of hard to talk about. So, um, I think you've created an amazing path that that a lot of people are on.
0: Well, thank you for being here with me. I really appreciate it. And yes, amazing, amazing feedback. Then this has is growing into an amazing community as well. So supportive and just. A, a really good thing. But so for today, we're going to pick up on part two of your interactions with Shelly. Where would you like to resume for this?
1: Well, we were we were discussing a story about how Shelly, um, as I was doing my liability formula after walking off my IMPR post and being punished hauling rocks in the levee, for a couple of weeks, and how I reached out to Shelley to ask her if I could do anything to help help her as part of my liability formula, and she said yes. Drop what you're doing and fly out to the Flag Land Base. So I told the story of coming out to the FLB and um, having an office down the hall. Dave and Shelley were at one end of the WB, and I was at the other. And what it was like to just be there with them. Working just, you know, doing a design, submitting it down the hall and getting it approved. You know, mm-hmm. I was so used to the command channels at the int base and following everything. And now here we were fast tracking this project. Yeah but, and, and and
0: sorry just to interject for a minute so command channels in Scientology obviously refers to that everything has to run through every executive above you in the chain of command so to speak so previously i imagine that when you were the int management public relations person or officer I should say that if you wanted to get something approved, it would have to go through Guillaume (laughs) Le Serve as executive director uh, international, and then CMO, which is the next management organization above that. And then somebody like probably six to seven people would have to sign (laughs) off on it before it ever made it to David Miscavige, who of course had to sign off on everything, right?
1: Yeah, and the joke was, I mean, the bureaucracy was so ridiculous. But the joke was none of the people that signed off of it had any knowledge or had anything to do with what I was doing. And very few people ever bothered to ask me questions about it or anything. They just signed off and it went to Dave straightway. So he was the one that would catch the errors or the things that need to be corrected. And, and, um, you know, maybe Claire, you mentioned to me that there was a point when, when you were in an RTC, uh, and you were uh, you were doing some cramming. Yes, and maybe that's what happened uh, because I don't remember this exactly, but I remember going into a cramming s- cycle with you. I don't remember what it was about, but it had it had to do with. D- Dave uh, getting a submission from me and maybe something on it needed to be corrected. Do you, do you remember that? Yes, I do. So this
0: was, and again, so for context and um, you know, Scenery of what we're talking about. So I was in Religious Technology Center and I was specifically at this time. So from, let's see, 1996 until 2000, I was in the section of Religious Technology Center that was responsible for overseeing management Operations like, and so we would attend every single meeting that David Miscavige had with management, which, as you recall, were extensive, (laughs) especially when he was on that property. But even when he was in Clearwater, Florida he would do conference calls like every, you know, we had those spaceship, uh, conference phones set up so that it was perfect audio quality and all this anyway. Um, but yeah, so I, and my, my role specifically was cramming, uh, which cramming in Scientology is essentially correction. So if, uh, if somebody if a management executive does a proposal and it's deemed that it's either violates Hubbard policy or directives or isn't in compliance with David Miscavige's instructions, then they the, the purpose of cramming is to then address that. So either find out what you disagree with, for example, or find out what you did wrong or, uh, clear up your misunderstood words that you didn't understand that are causing you to do it incorrectly, whatever. Um, and so, yes, I worked in the qual building in the, that little hallway where there were cramming offices. I remember that. Yeah. (laughs) And I had the one all the way at the end, you know, they had the camera system, of course, um, and I don't remember what our specific interaction was, but I'm quite positive that it had to do with a, a submission or a proposal that you had done that yeah. had been rejected by David Miscavige. And, and and it and Shelley Miscavige is the person that told me to do this with you. And there were always like uh there there was always a tone associated with um such a a, a situation like, for example, if um, most often if it was marking birth, let's say it was deemed that, oh, he messed up because he has evil purposes and he's committed crimes and, you know, get <laughs> to the bottom of it. <laughs> In the case with you, it was different. It was like, you know, Shelley was protective of you. And um, and I think she she could see that you had talents that could serve the purposes of what Shelley deemed to be good for Scientology. And so it was just a different tone. That's what I remember. But I I think it was not that long before you you ended up escaping, if I remember correctly.
1: (laughs) Well, I left in uh, the end of the summer of 1998. And I think we all got back from FLAG after the whole big FLAG Land Base project. I remember that being, well, Lisa McPherson, I think, died in 95 or
0: 96. Yep, December, and, December 1995.
1: Okay, so I was there for months, many months after that. So I think I got back to the base in the middle of 96 or the end of 96. So, but... At that point, we were talking about Shelly, I had been talking about um, uh, her as who, who she was as COB assistant, who she was as her own person, and who she was as my advocate. And um, so that's how I got into that storytelling, that she really became my advocate the day that she told me come to the Flagland base, I think ever since, and that that was in '95, and I didn't leave until '98. So she was my advocate over from 1995 to 1998. Wow! And I wish that I could have talked to her about the fears and the um, the the agony that I felt about the way Scientology was going, and in some cases I did try. Um, in fact, maybe this is a good time to read a story, uh, that is in my book that relates to this, um, because, because Shelly, I felt that she was my advocate and this was always a conflict in the sense of, you know, you and I discussed the theme or the motif of RTC was, being as hard as cold chrome steel. And I want to talk about that a couple of times in our talk today. Um, in fact, I'm going to ask you a question about that in a little bit, Okay. but, but going, going back to this point, um, it was always a conflict because I felt that Shelly had to do, carry out her role as COB assistant, the hardest as cold chrome steel bullshit that, you know, first of all, Did LRH write that or was that by by uh, David Miscavige? That was
0: written by Hubbard. Okay, Yeah.
1: All right. So since it was LRH, she adhered to it, as I'm sure you all were drilled and trained to do. And that's part of what I part of what I want to know. But anyway, her heart is cold chrome steel thing. She had to carry out that persona, whenever she went around the base with Dave. But there were moments when she was not with Dave. And I felt like she would try to steal moments when she was just being her own person. And so I want to read something. This is my book, Escaping Scientology. I have a few pages tab that I want to read from today. Perfect. Yep, and I
0: and of course I will link to your book again in part two description for this video. So
1: I really appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, of course. So this one moment um, when Shelly, I think, was just being her own person. Um, she called me up to the villas. Now you said. You described that there were three villas. The lower villa was where Dave and Shelley lived. Yes. The middle villa I I understand was where the RTC staff basically worked. And the upper villa had the war room and COB's office? Yes, that's okay. right. Okay. Now where was um, Shelley's office in those three buildings? It was, so Shelly's office was also in the upper villa. Okay. That's what I thought because whenever I would go up to COB to do a design submission or he would call me up to review something, I recall very specifically that Shelly had um, a desk that was kind of built into the wall and it seemed like there was a big window above her desk. Yep. That's exactly right. Okay, and <laughs> was it kind of a, a a three-sided window? I forgot what they're called. Uh, anyway, she had a, a, that's, was that the extent of her office? Yes. So, very interesting. This is one of the questions I was going to ask you, but, so COB had this big room that was his office, and when I would go up there... I trained myself to just make eye contact with him and not let my eyes gaze around his room. But when he would look away or if he would step away from his desk, I looked around his room and I absorbed what was in there. Mm -hmm. And I noticed everything on top of his desk. He had a cup of Mont Blanc pens, which were $150 a piece, by the way. And I one time counted them. There was a dozen. Yes. These pens in the cup. Um, And he had his chair was built to the size of his body, or it was custom sized for his small stature, as was his desk. It was at the scale that was not overwhelming to his body size, which was small. And he had incredible sound system. Uh, speakers and everything else in there on shelves and beautiful couch and all that. And I thought how interesting it was that COB's, COB assistant's office was basically off the hallway at the end of the room Mm -hmm. under the window. Did she have more of an office than that? Nope. That was her office there.
0: Um, When, when the, RTC building was built, which I think that was after after you, I left. Yeah, yeah, and that was a forty million dollar, uh, I think forty thousand square foot building. Yeah, and so she did have a bigger office in that building, but nonetheless, it was always dimin- diminutive or you know much smaller than, of course, David Miscavige because. Uh, as his assistant, she was his facility differential is what it's referred to as in Hubbard policy of she exists solely and only to get his orders carried out and executed.
1: Right. Well, so since we're talking about the office, I hope I can find this particular story, but one day um, Shelly called me up to the upper villa and Um, because she said, Dave wanted to go, COB wanted to go over a design submission with me. So when I walked in, she escorted me, it was past her desk, and there was like an island in the middle of the room. And she had placed my design submission on that island. And I, I did design submissions in these big, like 24 by 36 design books with spiral at the top so we could flip the pages and he would flip the pages and we would go through and and all that so this one particular um, time uh, she escorted me in there and Dave came over and she went and sat at her desk with her back to us but Obviously, she could hear everything we were discussing. And COB stood on one side of the island looking at the pages, and I stood on the other. And um, as we were going through this, I I don't remember which submission it was, but it had to do with it was a Sea Org unit. And we were in the process of revising, like taking out the military look of the Sea Org Even the insignia, we were looking at redesigning the insignia. Hmm. And and we were, um, even though it was military, we were finding different ways of representing the insignia besides military style, like bars on the shoulders and stuff like that. There's other ways we were discussing of how to do that. Shelley had had a lot of ideas. And anyway, so this particular submission, Dave is looking at these pages and here we are talking about the depths of Sea Org and Sea Org imagery, right? And as we're looking at this, um, hopefully, let me find this page. I had it marked. He's, he's looking over at um, at this uh, Sea Org imagery. And he said, I wrote this in my book. Right now, I, can't, I guess I didn't mark it. But he, he was looking at this Sea Org imagery, and he said he had his hands behind his back, like he was looking up. And he kind of went off into this deep in thought space that I had never seen him do before. Because he was always riveted, right? Riveted. And his those cold blue eyes would stare at you and make deep contact with you with his version of TRs, but, (laughs) (laughs) but at this moment, he like, it's like he took a mental break or something and he's standing there kind of gazing up in thought. And he said, you know, we can't. And he said this out loud to me, where was my recorder when I needed it? And he said, and this is in my book, he said, you know, we can't sell people Scientology, but we sure can sell them IAS memberships and donations. Hmm. Wow. This is the leader of Scientology stating that we can't sell people Scientology. Wow. Wow. And where and, was my recorder? Right,
0: right. Exactly. And isn't it isn't it true I'd have to pull it out again, but I recall that Hubbard specifically had policy not to do fundraising, which is exactly what the IAS is and what the Ideal Org program is. And yet it's a direct violation of an existing policy. So if you're going to go to bat for Scientology and Hubbard, then don't ignore the violations right in front of your face, right?
1: Well, you know, he's off on this thought and he's thinking, well, you know, we got to bring in money somehow. But what shocked me is that he would make that statement to me. Right. Me. I wasn't, you know, Mark Yeager. I wasn't Guillaume Lesev, I wasn't Norman Starkey. I wasn't Shelley Miscavige. I was Cior Gimmage. You know, and I thought, wow. But it made me realize perhaps who he felt me to be at that moment. Did he feel so comfortable that he could make such a statement with me? And at that moment, I I looked over because Shelly was right down the hall and she didn't flinch. She didn't move evidently they had conversations about that all the time so maybe that was no big deal as a topic but for me it absolutely lambasted me and I write write about this in my book because what shocked me is that Dave said um, we can't sell people Scientology (laughs) (laughs) and little things like this that I'm going to continue telling you stories about these are the things that contributed to me knowing that I had to get out of the Sea org and Scientology because if we can't sell people Scientology, then what the hell am I devoting my life to? It certainly isn't to raising money for the IAS, right? (laughs) You know, and it, I thought it was all about the tech and everything that we were doing. So, um, Wow. So, you know, that, that was a real bust. Yeah, um,
0: completely. And by the way, you reminded me of something, um, that you may or may not be aware of, but in 1997, um, there was, uh, ongoing legal proceedings in which, and again, I, of course, even being in Religious Technology Center, I was not privy to what was being said or, uh, you know, any any details. However, the piece that I was aware of is that um, the whole paramilitary um, terminology in relation to the SEA organization, which of course, yes, it is a paramilitary organization, mm-hmm. but everything about how the sea organization existed and was perceived led one to accurately come to the conclusion that David Miscavige is the head of the sea organization. And it strikes me that this was very probably a huge reason for this whole uniform redesign that you were working on because obviously if everybody is wearing the same clothes and the same bars and the same everything then yes of course even even by the clothing that you're wearing you would assume that David Miscavige is the head oh guy.
1: God. That just utterly blows me away because I had no idea you were going to say that <laughs> and and I or tell me that And I have, this is a notebook that I, it says Karen Schles on it, which I haven't been that since a long time ago, but this is the notebook that I brought with me to a couple of my meetings with Shelly to talk about uniforms. And I have notes in here from her of telling me how to get RTC and other units out of the military look. There you go. And I will, that just blows me away that you knew that, that that's incredible.
0: (laughs) I didn't know we were going (laughs) to talk about this either. It just struck me when you were talking because. Wow. Uh, even like, you know, we were talking about how I had to do correction actions with management and one of those correction actions with management executives and also the marketing and, um, dissemination staff was to change the way that they talked about David Miscavige to not talk about him as the head guy. And even at the time, honestly, I was like, I don't understand why he is the head guy. Why would we, you know, but I just did what I was told.
1: Right. Right. You didn't get to ask for that. What's the backup information about this, right? No, no. Oh, my God. Okay. Well, okay. I, I'm going to read. I've got a couple things that tie into what we're talking about here. Okay, perfect. And this is from my book. So excuse me for my, I'll be looking down reading, okay? You're good. Okay, so let's see. Um, so this is on page three. 283 of my uh, book and my chapter here is called Breaking Point Point." and I, I give anecdotes I tell stories about all the little things that added up like pennies dropping of what caused me to realize I had to leave not only because um, well I, I really felt at that point that I had to be concerned about my survival Because of what I saw Things going on at the base Alright, so Bottom of page 283 I reflected on a recent conversation With Shelly Miscavige and I had Sitting in one of the Upper Villa offices She had been reminiscing About being a Commodore's messenger On the Apollo When they wore, when they wore uniforms Of shorts and white boots And tie ties she and I laughed about me having no idea what a tie tie was and I'll break and I'll just say, she said, I want you to come up with something. I just love that. We wore these things called tie ties. And I said, sir, what's a tie tie. And she said, you know, a tie tie. And I laughed because she could not find words to describe a tie tie. (laughs) (laughs) And it what struck me is that I realized I didn't know how much education she had, but I knew that she didn't have much otherworldly experience. Like she had been on the Apollo, the ship, the whole time she was a, a little girl and grew up, I don't know what time how old she was when she got to the flag land base or wherever she went. No, she must have been she married Dave. I don't know where they were. He had been out at uh, the the uh, W shooting with LRH. I don't know how old they were when they got married, but she had no otherworldly experience. Right. Okay. So that was the context that I received this in. You know, I had had some education, college education, and I had had a career as a several careers music, design. And I thought, wow, her context, like she couldn't describe it because she didn't have real life world experience to describe it. Yep. Anyway, so we laughed about the fact that she had trouble describing a tie tie other than calling it, you know, a tie tie. (laughs) She had also told me about a movie that she had recently seen called The English Patient that I had seen once. A French-Canadian nurse was living in a bombed-out Italian monastery after World War II, nursing a critically burned English-speaking man who reveals his past working in the 1930s as a cartographer in the Egyptian-Libyan deserts. Shelley Miscavige was smitten with the styling of this film, The English Patient. She loved it so much, the clothing the actors wore from that period, Hmm. She told me to research that movie and propose a uniform for C.O.B.'s office staff based on the clothing, the costumes of The English Patient. Hmm, wow. It had a banana republic influence with 1930s khaki pants and white cotton shirts. So for that reason, I had to go watch The English Patient. I had seen it once before. But now she wanted me to use this as there was a reference that we used at the end base called Art Series 8, which was part of LRH's art series on teachings of art. And Art Series 8 was you find something out in the world that's an example, and you use that as an example for your plan. Right. So, so my Art Series 8 was the English patient. And this is for COB's office uniform. So what we're talking about there is 1930s, 1940s, if you remember, kind of high-waisted, pleated, sort of baggy pants that taper down to cuffs. And they're pleated khaki color, gabardine, with white cotton shirts that had pockets, breast pockets. And collars, and sometimes without collars, but they usually they had spread collars. And uh, COB COB assistant told me, and this is a note in my notebook, and that she said maybe you could add an ascot because LRH wore ascots, and it would look kind of sourcy. And that's the word she used: S O U R C E hyphen Y.
0: Wow. And and for context, Sorry. everybody would
1: refer to
0: Hubbard as source, source because he was the source of Scientology, right? But wow, that's crazy. So and she wanted, that, she wanted David Miscavige's notebook. office and David Miscavige to be, to appear as source. Sourcy. Sourcy which has completely, that is the path that has transpired since we both left. It's That's insane.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, before I read on, I'm going to go into this little notebook. And this was, these notes, <laughs> here's my first page of notes. You can see it talks about um, English patient. Yes, I see that. <laughs> this is probably from... Um, 1996, 1997, something like that. Um, and for COB, no blue shirts, all white shirts. Um, COB's office was supposed to be white and khaki, and CMO Aunt was going to be completely different, probably blue. But take out the military, make it look like this 1930s, 1940s sort of style. Um. Oh, there's so much in here uh, that is just crazy. But I ended up designing some jackets for RTC. Do you remember those navy blue jackets? Yes, I do. Okay, so those were very 1940s. If you remember, they they had epaulets up here, but not to look military. I, I don't remember if they did have epaulets or not, but they had kind of strong shoulders, And I, we had the um, embroidered logos and they hit the waist. That was a very 1940s English patient style of kind of like after a bomber, a bomber jacket that was worn during the war. Yeah. Um, So that was the influence on the jacket except we did it in a Navy blue gabardine and then we embroidered on it. Yes. And, and, and and and
0: didn't it have the person's name on one side and an RTC on the other? Do I remember that correctly? Okay. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it did. Um, and so I wanted to ask you, um, after I designed those RTC jackets, did you ever hear, uh, Shelley or Dave, um, comment, on that product or uh, like the look of it and how it fit in with their plan for transforming the look of COB's office or RTC.
0: Um, not specifically though, though I know that um, both Dave and Shelly were both very much about appearances, you know, like the, the, there's a, the Hubbard policy that says uh, they will know us by our best messed- uh, which, you know, translate that to the people in civi- civilians in the outside world will recognize our power and our strength by the quality of our belongings and our buildings and our clothing and how we present. So they were both uh, always very much like sharp presentable, you know, a lot of focus on that. And I do remember the uniforms that you're talking about um, that were fashioned after the English patient. Of course, I had no idea that that's what they were fashioned after. (laughs) But the interesting piece to me, is to know that that was Shelley's direction, mm-hmm. because in later years, it took a very sharp and different turn, which was to become all black after the police. Wow. It was intentionally um, patterning. and I, I think that was after you had escaped. And I'm at, if I remember correctly, um Erd, do you remember Erd Priester? I do. I think she is the one that, did the design of the police uniforms, because of course, uh, Religious Technology Center and David Miscavige are police. That was the intention. Uh, It's a policing organization. And in fact, um, I've talked about this recently, and I'm not sure if if you're aware of this, but uh, so on the So in Scientology, any organization has an organizing board or an organizing chart. Mm -hmm. And do you remember that in the upper corner, there was a, a little triangular flag that represented Religious Technology Center? I do. Okay, so did you know that the reason it's that shape is because it represents that RTC can go in at any level, anywhere, regardless of the command channels that everybody else is required to follow? I
1: did not know that. I never read that. I never heard that. Yeah. I saw that there, but I didn't know that.
0: I think it's, if I remember correctly, so of course there are, there were RTC advices is what they were referred to. And it was a, a dedicated library, computer library um, in the source information retrieval system referred to as Sir, and only people in Religious Technology Center had access to those. So that's why it was. It's not something commonly known. But the point being that RTC is literally. It's also referred to as the Inspector General Network. Uh, it is entirely police. So after that English patient design that you're talking about, where Shelley was trying to look like. Elron Hubbard, David Miscavige changed that very dramatically to
1: police. Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. You remember um, this whole English patient thing was really also the era that LRH emerged from, 30s, 40s. He knew Lenny Riefenstahl, the Nazi propagandist, in the 40s. And then somewhere not long after that, he went to Rhodesia. And in Rhodesia, he carried out this khaki pants, white shirt. There are loads of pictures of LRH with that look. Yes. And that is the look. (laughs) Or that connects to the look that Shelley was going for, how all that ties into the film, LRH's background, his thing in Rhodesia, uh, and this whole non-military uh, look. Yes, interesting stuff. Very so, much so,
0: and and of course to tie it back, Shelley started working with Hubbard very very closely at approximately the age of eleven in the late sixties. Mm -hmm. So she probably that's, uh, you know, I'm sure ties very closely to her earliest memories of him.
1: Yeah. And that's what he would have worn on the ship that those are the like mental, uh, like the images she would have had of him is that look, that khaki white ascot thing. Yes. And how all that to her means source. It represents source. Yes. It conveys the image of source. Very interesting. Completely. Well, I'll finish off this part of the story with I just have to show you some of these notes. <laughs> I I was looking through this the other day. You just you just won't believe it. Um so here's a page right here. Can you see this? It says yes. samples for RTC. Yes. Okay, so I have pages of these. You could look. Um, I don't know how good of a job I'm doing to show these. But I have pages of these. Look, pages where I, <laughs> I went out purchasing, buying samples. I have four pages of notes. And, and I, I log the store, the color, the cost, and I also logged the payment method. Now, this goes off onto a tangent, but when I, after I escaped uh, in, 19, in uh, July 31st, 1998, uh, somewhere along the line, uh, somebody gave me some information. It might have been uh, Peter had called his family members after I escaped to talk bad about me so that they wouldn't give me any comfort if I contacted them to let them know that I had escaped. And his, I think it was his brother, Bo, who said, yeah, Peter said that you committed financial irregularities. I thought, well, he was saying, he was making this up. I thought he was making it up to just make me look bad. Like, you know, ooh, they got me on something, you know, and It wasn't until recently that I actually realized this is the financial irregularities. Wow. How so? Because I would go purchasing. I would go to LA. I went to everywhere, to Beverly Hills, to Nordstrom, to Banana Republic, you name it. And I would buy stuff out of my pocket, no approved POs. I see. Wow. There were times when I did have a credit card that was given to me by somebody from RTC. I don't remember if it was Shelly. It could have been Marion and Dendu. Um, I don't remember. Or it could also have been Barbara Griffin. Somebody in Treasury, maybe to do some purchasing. But um, I... This was the way that my post was. I mean, there I was after I was in the landlord's office, uh, which which is in the finance network. But really, nobody ran me. It was Shelly and Dave who gave me my marching orders. or They gave me my direction, and I would just do my job. I didn't really need somebody telling me what to do, but um, I just needed direction. But I would go out. And, you know, I would CSW and say, I need to go purchase samples for RTC, uniform project, whatever. And I would go and I logged all this stuff right here. Wow. This is financial irregularity. If you look at it from a strict LRH policy to where you write a CSW and you get it approved and you get a purchase order and it gets approved through treasury and then they give you the money. Or they give you a way to buy it, like an approved card or something. So I have four pages of this. And a lot of this was for the RTC samples, but some of it became personal for Dave and for Shelly. I was buying things for Dave and Shelly. So in essence, I was doing being their shopper. Right, in a Wow, sense. and in in many cases, I mean, I would if Shelly decided to keep something, I have notes. Here's my card. Use my card. Some is cash. And so the point is, so I was doing all that. Um, that had to be the summer of like between ninety seven and ninety eight. I was working on this project. So when I escaped. One of the things that I had to go over with Peter, and he and I never spoke, I had to write this in a note, and I said, look, um, you need to collect from RTC because I used our credit card to buy a lot of stuff for the RTC project, so I don't know if he ever cleared that out ever got reimbursed from RTC, but there's a big, fat financial irregularity with RTC.
0: Wow. And of course, for context, had you said, oh, I need to go and get a purchase order approved first, like when Dave or Shelley would order you to do something, you were expected to just immediately go well, and get it, get it, get done. it done.
1: Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know that delays were not tolerated. No uh delays, who could who could delay, you know, complying to an order from Dave or,
0: yeah. from, and, or from Shelley? Right. And isn't it true that if you did that, you would be found guilty of the crime of, quote, using policy to stop unquote.
1: There you go. Yes. <laughs> Using policy you're damned if you damned if you do and you're, and damned, you're damned if you if don't. You don't. So, wow. You know, so I was between a rock and a hard place on that one, you know. Um, but Shelley kept a, quite a few things that I bought. I've got on one of these pages, I've got her sizes, I've got Dave sizes, everything. Interesting. From from shoes to waist to neck collar size, sleeve length, uh, inseam, everything. So, wow. yeah, that was pretty a pretty interesting era. Um, of course, I enjoyed it because that was like my work that I enjoyed doing, and I thought, "Wow, I guess, I guess this is okay." So. Uh, <laughs> anyway it's crazy yeah so um so one day so i was asking you where shelly's or the uh, shelly's office was in in the upper villa i know where it was down the hall from cob but there was another area that she used to work in and i think that must have been in the middle villa because it was sort of off the driveway and there was a room that had a work table in the middle
0: so sh- that i know what you're talking about that was in the lower villa and okay. it was on if it's the room i'm thinking of if it's it was on the um the south side of the villa so it looked out over the road highway 79 that ran through the property so it was on the back side of the lower villa okay that
1: i don't remember um- okay I remember going up there on my scooter, coming up the driveway, and then going into this room with her. So she brought me into this room one day, and um, and we were talking about the RTC uniforms. But that whole discussion segued into another conversation, and it's it's quite amazing. And I wrote it in detail in my book. All right. So I figured this would be a good time to talk about this because, you know, I learned a lot about Shelly as she was talking to me about things like the English patient and her contacts with LRH on the ship and the idea to sort of assimilate or no, excuse me, to exemplify a source image, which I think is very interesting because most of the pictures that, public have seen of LRH, are from his earlier days in the 60s. Yes, the the 60s and 70s, uh, Rhodesia and things like that. So that image was there. So All right, so in that context, so she brought me up to this villa, to this workroom, and it was away from COB. His, his workspace was nowhere near this. And she and I were sitting at a work table by ourselves, And there was a window. Anyway, no one else was around. So in the middle of talking about the English patient, 1930s look and all that, the Banana Republic thing, I'm going to read now uh, from this expert in my book, page 284. In the midst of this lighthearted conversation, COB assistant asked me, What tone level do you think the int-based staff are in? With little hesitation, I said, I think most everyone is numb or in fear. And I wrote, that's below 1.1 covert hostility, around 1.0 on a scale of 0 to 40. Individuals ridden by fear are afraid to be or to own anything. That's in my book. So I said, you know, I was shocked that she asked me, what tone level do you think the in-based staff are in? Yep. Wow, that was a like actually quite a personal question. Very definitely. Yeah.
0: And do you think that she was asking you that? With the inference that that tone level was driven by David Miscavige or something else?
1: Oh, I'll I'll read you the rest. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I, I Sorry not that. to jump ahead. <laughs> no, 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 no. Good question, because that's exactly <laughs> what, I, what I talk about. Okay, so I said, well, you know, she said, what tone level do you think the in-base staff are in? And I said, I think most everyone is numb or in fear. Okay, so that's around 1 to 1.0. COB assistant responded, I think they're lower, like in apathy. And for those who aren't familiar with the tone scale, apathy is very low on the tone scale, which I think is like... Point five, somewhere yes. around there. Yes,
0: that's right, which is essentially half a point above being above, dead. Dead, it above complete dead. Apathy, like it's depicted in the Scientology film as just like, you know, uh, very yes. close to dead, yeah.
1: Yes. So COV assistant responded, I think they're lower, like in apathy. And I go on to say, I wanted to ask her why she thought the staff had fallen into apathy. But I felt a bit cautious of treading too far into what was or what had been a comfortable conversation. I did say, I think many people don't know how to do what's wanted on their post. They're afraid of screwing up and angering COB. And uh, Shelley replied, so many people have no clue how to do work without requiring orders. They wait for orders before they will do anything. And I looked at Shelly and I said, I thought to myself, God, I'm having this conversation with COB assistant, right? Yeah. About, the, about the whole int base. So I responded, sir, do you think they wait for orders to do anything because they are in fear of doing something on their own that might be wrong? She said, no, that's just being a robot. Not doing anything is apathy. Well, that was our conversation. And my I have a few things to say about that. Yeah. And I'll read. LRH Tech on SPs and potential trouble sources says that a sign of an SP in the area is that people around them are not doing well, are sick and failing in life. I wanted to ask Shelly Miscavige whether she had ever considered getting the int-based staff through the PTSSP course. Mm -hmm. That was one thing that had never been tried in terms of uh, correcting what seemed to be the impossible situation of uncorrectable int-based staff. But I didn't feel free to ask her that question, nor was Shelley Miscavige free enough in her own thinking to consider that her husband might be an SP, causing many staff to stumble in their effectiveness. After reflecting on that conversation and after the staff meeting that night, and I wrote about the staff meeting at CMON that night, I concluded that this base was a sorry mess of PTS. That would never resolve using Scientology because no one could see the SP who was causing the real problems. Wow. Interesting. So let me add some context
0: to that of my experiences. In 1997 and 1998, um, Shelley was working desperately to try and get. David Miscavige in session for Scientology counseling, oh, wow. um, and she expressed that she was um, concerned he'd had a psychotic break.
1: Did you see evidence of this yourself? Well, sure. I, I mean, I mean and obviously the way he behaved was just psychotic. But yes, I, what I meant to say was, was there a moment? That she might have been referring to, or was this a general behavioral situation?
0: It was a general behavior behavioral situation mm-hmm. for sure, um, but she was absolutely very concerned. Wow! Yeah, could you repeat what you said? She, you said that she
1: was. Sandy, in, please.
0: Yeah. So, so Shelley was working very hard to get David Miscavige into session, like for Scientology counseling, to address what she felt was he was heading for, or had had a psychotic break.
1: Wow. And this was 97?
0: 97 and early 1998. So at the time, the, the factors that were going on that I understood were contributing to this concern that she had because she had brought it up, is that the Lisa uh, Lisa McPherson legal proceedings, both a criminal and civil, were ongoing. Mm -hmm. And David Miscavige knew that to be a huge threat or stated it many times that it was a huge threat to Scientology. And the entire burden of fixing that, that situation legally was on him completely.
1: Wow. I mean, I'm aware that that happened, and I'm aware that he would have thought that way, but I was unaware that she was questioning whether he had had a psychotic break. Yes. And that is so fascinating to me because this moment when she, you know, brought me into this workroom and had this conversation with me, I mean, who was I? I, you know, maybe she considered me, and I I do believe she considered me, I wouldn't say friend, but because people at the base, especially between RTC and lower staff, didn't necessarily make friends or act, act like friends with people like that. But yeah, I think that there were exceptions in terms of you knew who you felt you could trust and you knew you could who you felt you could maybe even confide in, you know, uh, I mean, it takes trust to confide. But for her to ask me questions like what tone level do you think the int based staff are in? I thought was absolutely fascinating that she asked me that question. Absolutely.
0: She obviously was uh, maybe not considering you a peer per se, because I completely agree with your statement about friendships. And I've said the same thing. Um, Like we worked, you and I, as an example, worked together at that property for 10 years, approximately, let's say. And yet we've talked more in these two interviews, than we ever did in ten <laughs> years that we were there. You know, I'm just saying. So true. From context. It's it's not. It, it's completely true. There's no such thing as friends yeah. in the C organization, and even the people that I confided in when I was in Religious Technology Center promptly turned around and stabbed me in the back to the point that I was like, wow, I'm never doing that ever again.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I'm never trusting anybody with my thoughts, my emotions, my fears. Yes. You you can't because because it's a it's a reporting, it's a reporting environment. Um, Yes. You know, so snitch, snitch
0: culture is very, very (laughs) alive and well in the C organization. But yeah, so, so even, uh, you know, Shelley, for, for for the four years that I was internal executive, where I was report, my, my direct senior was Marty Rathbun. He was my boss. And so that's where, according to the Scientology lawyers in our lawsuit and in my deposition, they were like, well, isn't it true? You were number three three in command. And so, yes, technically, if you were looking at the Religious Technology Center org chart that we were talking about, yes, I was number three. Did that mean I have free, had freedoms and, um, you know, ability to uh, maybe a little bit, but no, I was a prisoner just as everybody else was.
1: <laughs> wow. Especially yeah. under Marty Rathbun. Yes, wow. completely.
0: Wow. Anyway, but anyway. yeah, so, so Shelley, I agree with you. I, I've, I looked up to her. I considered her a mentor. I considered her an empathetic, compassionate person who believed deeply in L. Ron Hubbard and the mission, um, mm-hmm. But in retrospect, and in doing the series, I question, well, is that because she got in when she was six years old? Or is is that because she still actually believes that to this day? And I honestly don't know the answer to that.
1: Yeah. And we will never know. I mean, highly unlikely that we will ever have that conversation. Yes. But boy, would I love to be a fly on the wall. I would love to talk with her now about what we went through then. And what you told me just now, what you told us just now about 1997, 1998, her thinking, trying, needing to get him in session because she was concerned that he may have had a psychotic break, says everything about her. Yes. I mean, that is very telling because, wow, that, you know, that ties into the whole Simon Bolivar thing. Yes, um, the responsibility of leaders,
0: which responsibility is responsibility of leaders, a pivotal policy that Shelley—that was her playbook on everything. She. I mean, the amount of times you you probably even had to word clear, read that policy out loud, all oh, 10 yes. pages of it.
1: <laughs> that, <laughs> so, might been, that might have been what you sent me to cramming on. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe on that HCOV, whatever it was, HCOV. Policy, yeah. yes. Yeah. It very well could be. Um, but you're right. I, she demonstrated that to the S. I I mean, that was the essence of her of her role as COB yes. assistant, responsibility of leaders. But at the same time, you got to wonder, you know, she was his wife and yes, she was COB assistant, but as a wife, you know, if your husband's like going crazy or off the rails and with his erratic behavior and his violent outbursts, um, She had to be concerned about his well-being. Oh, yes. You know, I mean, even separate from her post as COB assistant, she was his wife. And so she saw how it was affecting him in ways that nobody else would have been able to observe. Yes, you know? completely. And and there's
0: no doubt, you remind me too. Uh there she Shelley absolutely saw the cracks forming, not only in his physical and emotional and violent outbursts, but also um on many occasions I had to interrogate female staff that Shelly suspected um you know that they were up to no good with or had that, you know, intentions to engage with David Miscavige. Like
1: flirt with him mm-hmm. or yeah, be seductive some way in their behavior. Yes. I Gen- Jenny Linson
0: that. was one of those.
1: I'm sure she was. Yeah. yeah. I had those questions myself. <laughs> about jenny right
0: question yeah because jenny was in david miscavige's inner circle yeah for many many years yeah yeah anyway not to get off
1: topic but shelly definitely saw the cracks forming (laughs) i'm sure she did and interesting you bring that up because that was one of my questions that i was going to ask you but um you know did (laughs) Related to that, but I, I won't go off on that tangent, Okay, um, but I want to finish. Um, so we're talking about David, David's state of mind and how Shelly reacted to this. It was her as her own person being his wife, but it was also her and her role of COB assistant and, how she used the responsibility of leaders, Simon Bolivar policy as her playbook. But this is what she had to deal with. I, I tried to describe his um, behavior. And this is, um, I wrote this in my IMPR chapter, but this is all in context of Shelley having to deal with this. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Um, It's on page 256 in my book, and it says, clearly, David Miscavige had his own ways of addressing problems and conflicts, and his state of mind seemed to be outside of our experiences. We were always expected to refer to a policy or some Scientology tech that would help to handle a problem. Miscavige didn't lead with Scientology like that. He always talked and even screamed about Scientology and getting ethics and tech in. He talked the talk that he didn't walk. DM lived in a different world than the rest of us as Scientologists. He became an enigma to me. It was hard to comprehend who he really was. One thing I knew for sure, Dave held a strange advantage over the rest of us who had consciences that kept us in line. He seemed to behave with unhampered liberty to do just as he pleased. He made himself out to be flawless and overworked because of us. I wondered if he ever had a pang of conscience after he verbally or physically abused one of his staff. I began to question whether he had a conscience at all. He seemed to have ice water in his veins. He didn't seem to exercise any restraints on himself when it came to expressing frustration or anger. He would scream in someone's face, push or hit them, and then walk away and start a new conversation as if nothing had just happened. I never once saw anyone confront him about his abusive behavior and case dramatizations. Perhaps the real problem at the int base was not that everyone who worked here was so incompetent or suppressive, as Miscavige said. Perhaps the problem was that David Miscavige possessed the ability to conceal his true psychological makeup that we couldn't understand. Did he even believe in Scientology or L. Ron Hubbard anymore? I often wondered David Miscavige was far from my role model for an on-source Scientologist, but it would work to his benefit that who he really was would remain invisible to the rest of us. This would enable him to continue exercising a strange advantage over our handicapped minds. Wow, that is powerful, Karen.
0: And you're absolutely right. We, were, we had handicapped minds, <laughs>
1: Completely. And I'm bringing this up right now because this is the mind that Shelly was married to. And this is what she had to deal with on a routine basis. And, you know, I wasn't there in her last days when, and and I, I don't remember if you had left at this point, but when she exercised an independent executive decision and finished up the org boards that pissed him off and that preceded her being um, escorted off off the base in a car and disappeared forever. Okay, so she exercised that independent decision knowing that she was dealing with this mind that I just described. And she got the whammy right there. She got it. She got the full brunt of it. Yes, right there.
0: Yes. And that, so her final days as his assistant were after I left. Um, I think she was, uh, it was probably about six months after I escaped. So I escaped in January 2005. Okay. But honestly, I believe that that piece of what you were just talking about in terms of her, the org board and uh, so she was finishing the org chart that had been supposed to be being completed. By that point, it had it was already direct orders from David Miscavige from 1999 So this was now 2005. So six years and the org charts had not been completed. And because the org charts had not been completed, nobody, David Miscavige said by that time, nobody had a post because you can't have a post if the org chart isn't approved. It became this like just this big, giant chaos. Chaos. Exactly. <laughs> but my point being that, yes, I believe that that this incident was a major piece. But I also believe that Shelly Miscavige violently disagreed with um, how much David Miscavige was interacting with Tom Cruise by that point. Mm-hmm. And I think that played a role in her fall, in her being disappeared out of his life.
1: And that was around 2005.
0: Yes. Okay.
1: Yeah, that's seven years after I was gone, and you said six months after you were gone. Yes. Wow. So, yeah, I can't speak to any of that. I, but I, you know, even though I left in 98, I had garnered all these thoughts and all these views. And thank God I captured them and put them in a book because it's still true today as it was when I wrote it. You know, completely. I published it in 2017, although I'd been writing it for years prior, uh, but um, crazy. Um, so which ties back to what we were talking about in part one, this conflict of the hard is cold chrome steel thing, because that that is what triggered my questioning of who Shelley was when I saw her observe Dave being abusive, whether it was physical assault or verbal abuse or exercising humiliation on people, things like that. And I think that this really graded her at her core. And you made a comment um, in our first talk about how you sometimes struggled with being hard as cold chrome steel. So I wanted to ask you a question, if you'll allow me to ask you this question. Absolutely. Because it relates to you and Shelly and this topic. So when you were in RTC, were you were the staff drilled or uh, indoctrinated or educated in any way, shape, or form about how to be as hard as cold chrome steel? That is a great question.
0: Um, and yes. Um, so for example, um, do you remember the movie, no way out with Kevin Costner? Probably. Okay. Uh,
1: it's refresh my memory.
0: <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm going to botch it cause I'm, I'm really terrible. Even though I saw the movie like four times, essentially, um, he is a spy. And he's sent in at a young age. He's like a sleeper agent. Um, and anyway, he ends up being in the military and it's this whole big thing. And you don't know who the spy is uh, from the from the beginning. But um, it's a, a shocker of a revelation when you find out, oh, my gosh, he was a spy. Anyway... Um, and, and, And it's not that that was representing hard as cold chrome steel. I think it just represents the paranoia that was in David Miscavige's mind. Um, And there was another movie. Mm -hmm. uh, Oh gosh. Mark would remember with um, uh, I'm going to have to look it up and we'll talk about it next time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But you mentioned art series eight and how, for example, you had to watch the English patient as a, a, you know, to pattern your uniform design. Well, RTC, Religious Technology Center, was made to watch No Way Out um, as that, as an example of like...
1: Interesting.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and the because it was always um, Shelley and David Miscavige both were always completely paranoid of plants, you know, what they were... And I don't actually honestly know if that's uh, generally a real world term or just unique to Scientology in terms of the context, but a plant being somebody that's been sent in to destroy Scientology and is reporting to the outside or the police or the FBI, they were always, always um, suspicious of people being plants and- yeah,
1: um, and the uh, the whole as, as was L R H. Yes, yes. Look at how look at how he implemented all uh, the policy at the in base of like we couldn't use scented products or scented laundry detergent or soaps because this could be covering up some sort of uh, uh, poison or um, something that a plant had implemented that would harm him or anybody else that was there. Yes, exactly. So in the
0: late 90s, uh, Religious Technology Center started doing plant checks on people just randomly, like David Miscavige would say, that person's a plant, plant check them. And of course, in the Hubbard writings about plants, it involves that uh, there's use of pain, drug and hypnosis to flip somebody to become a plant to do their, to, you know, to be carry out the evil mission or whatever right uh, but there was so much suspicion of that um, and and yes absolutely to get back to your question in terms of hard as cold chrome steel um, there was always like this um, just this requirement to have that steel edge uh, another example of that is um, in 1996 when I was sent to Clearwater Florida, I was in a group of, I think, uh, approximately 26 other Religious Technology Center staff who were training to become representatives. Who were going reps. Yes. yes. I remember. Yeah. Yes. And we were going to be sent to all organizations all over the world as David Miscavige's eyes and ears on the ground to be able to report to him. Anything and everything that was of Religious Technology Center concern, which, you know, there's a giant long list and it includes uh, any Scientologist reporting to the police, for example, you know, any legal matters um, that would affect Scientology on and on and on. Ironically, I was supposed to be the RTC rep for Celebrity Center. Wow. I don't know if you knew that. <laughs> I did not. Yeah, but the point being, to get back to the question, one of the requirements to graduate from this representative training program was you had to send somebody to the rehabilitation project force.
1: Wow. Yeah. Wow. So you had to be a hard ass, hard nosed, cold police. Yeah. To send somebody. To Scientology's prison camp, essentially, right? Yeah, you couldn't. And it, you couldn't falter. No,
0: no, you had to, you know, stick to it. And you, you weren't going to make it through the program if you didn't do that requirement. Wow, wow, that's
1: crazy. So, so, uh, so your description of this. Um, so when I asked you, so about the training. So okay, I see. I see now how you were oriented to this mindset of being hard as cold chrome seal. And you commented um, in our first talk, you said that you sometimes uh, were struggled with it or were challenged by it. What did you mean by that?
0: So, yeah, that's a really great question. I think that, you know, there's so many elements in my upbringing in Scientology that seemed contrary to being hard as cold, chrome, steel. And as as from my perspective, you know, the beingness, doingness, havingness was a core concept in Scientology. If you're in the right beingness, being who you're supposed to, whatever role you're supposed to play, that you, you establish what it is you're supposed to be, then what it is you're supposed to do to then, Accomplish the havingness or your product, right? As if you're, uh, it's a core, core management concept in Scientology, policy concept in Scientology. And so always it would be you establish your beingness, then you outline what it is you have to do to get your product, and then you do it. And um, to have a beingness that emulated metal. You know we're human <laughs> beings like how it se- it just seemed to be in complete conflict with so many core concepts of Scientology that I was really trying to you know contort my mind to adhere to like yeah, how can you be hard as cold chrome steel and yet have affinity a feeling of love or liking reality something you can agree upon communication understanding how can you have like they just seemed to be contradictory and Absolutely. then and yeah and then factor in okay you're as a counselor in Scientology another core concept is you're supposed to have the person if if I'm the auditor and you're the preclear or the recipient or, you know, on the receiving end, you're supposed to be interested in your own case and willing to talk to me. And if I'm hard as cold chrome steel, how does that work? Um, (laughs) (laughs) You know, again, it just seemed at every turn to be contradictory. And I struggled with it because I didn't You know, my purpose, uh, I thought that I was doing something that was going to help people. Mm. And, you know, when it turned into David Miscavige screaming that this person has X, Y, and Z going on, uh, I really struggled with that. Because I'm like, well, how do you know that that's what they have going on? Mm. How do you know? And how can you assume that that's what they've got going on? And how, uh, you know, it all just was... At great odds, you know, just conf- conflicting.
1: And I didn't have a
0: resolution to it.
1: That's an, an amazing, uh, amazing example uh, that points to the question about David Miscavige and his. Uh, I think it was his, I think that being paranoid was in his DNA. Yeah, because he he got it from LRH. How else would he have learned that? I mean, you know, when he was at St. Hill, uh, when Ron had brought the family to St. Hill, he was learning, supposed to learn to audit. So where did he get that from? It certainly wasn't in his family's DNA. So he gets to work with LRH uh, at W as a cameraman and of course he learns that LRH is paranoid and uh, in, you know, he he lives in such a way as to be Fabian and always knowing that the FBI is going to be coming after him or, or whatever was in his mind for the paranoia. So Dave learned this and then he began to live it because then they started all this crazy stuff of driving back and forth to wherever LRH was hiding and You know, so it became part of his mindset. He it was part of his computations, and like I like I wrote in my book, he lived in a different world than the rest of us.
0: Yes, because he
1: and and so did Shelley. And uh, Shelley, growing up on the ship, of course, she would have picked some of that up from L. R. H. because he was on the ship, because he was avoiding the IRS and the FBI. (laughs) Right. That doesn't mean that he told them the truth about why he was on the ship. She just saw the lifestyle that he was living. But the point being, um, wow, that paranoia is what caused all of that. Yes, completely.
0: And so not to cut you off, but we're, we're well past our hour. Do you think we'll need to do, should we plan on a part three of where Shelly or, or, or do you feel that the next part should just be more general?
1: Well, I think that um, I think that we've talked about so many things that if 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 it turns out that the viewers that your audience um, are very interested in all this, then I would love to continue to pick up on this thread. And it might not focus uh, only on Shelley, but I think that Shelley would be, like the trigger for talking about many topics because I have 13 questions on my sheet of <laughs> paper to ask you. Here's all that's amazing, questions. that's amazing. And well, they all, they all came up from this conversation. I there's something that I'm dying to ask you. Um, well, go ahead, I, go ahead. Ask yes. me one one question and then we can end, and then we can decide to continue. Okay, perfect. All right. So earlier you were talking about Shelly and um, RTC, uh, the hardest cold chrome steel thing. We've talked about that, but you were we were talking about how um, RTC did not necessarily mingle with. Uh, People in lower orgs, even though it was CMO and, uh, in finance, exec strata to gold, like different orgs on the base. So basically, it was RTC people befriending each other. Although, as you and I have said, there was no time to strike up a friendship, right? Right. Yep. So one thing that I observed, and I, I've been dying to ask you this question. Because there was this distinct separation between from between RTC and the rest of the base, the in-base orgs, there was a time, and I wanted to know if Shelley was part of this evolution or if it was just Dave. But there was a time when RTC staff uh, were physically kind of relocated to where RTC staff were only going on one bus where RTC staff lived in off base apartments together for those who lived off base, which for the most part was everybody to my knowledge. Yeah. There might've been a few people that lived on base or down the road in those uh, little cottages. Um, But we lived, you know, at the Devonshire, we lived at um, the one in closer to Hemet where I lived, we lived in different complexes, but RTC staff at a point were just put out on their own, like living in apartments with only RTC staff, busing with only RTC staff. Now we all use the same dining hall. And of course you had your own offices. Uh, but what I wanted to know is what was the thinking, the mindset behind that? Cause it's very, and I wanted to know if Shelly was, Is this something that she implemented as a COB order or was it her idea or how did this come about and what was the mindset behind it?
0: Yes. Great question. Uh, This was completely driven by David Miscavige and again, ties back to his paranoia. Um, He, uh, let's see. So Mark and I were married in 1992 And then I was promoted into Religious Technology Center in 1996. Uh, Our entire 13 years of marriage at that property, David Miscavige went after uh, us trying to destroy our relationship Mm -hmm. specifically and pointedly. But even more so after I became um, a member of Religious Technology Center and is specifically, we I had a conversation with David Miscavige in 2000 um, in the Middle Villa, where he said, "You know, I'm implementing a new personnel policy for RTC," and I said, "Yes, sir, I heard," because Shelley had told me ahead of this conversation, and he said, "What is it?" And I said, "You're going to require that any member of Religious Technology Center cannot be married to anybody else, not." In religious technology center, wow! And of course, he knew. She he told, told him, you that. She yes. told
1: you that that was going to be implemented. Okay.
0: Yes, and the and the reason why is because it kept coming up um, that member staff of religious technology center would share things that David Miscavige said. Okay. To only to religious Technology center. and that was considered out security and sleeping with the enemy. These are I these see. are the words, the terms that David Miscavige used to describe this. and um and essentially was um threatening. Him Uh, because, like, for example, I'm I'm not sure if you remember Urs Sporey and Caroline Sporey. Caroline was a a staff member in Religious Technology Center, and she said something to Urs about something she witnessed David Miscavige do or say or something, and that was nattering about David Miscavige saying a critical thing, even though she was just saying what happened. Um, so uh, essentially, it, this was viewed as this isolation of religious technology center was to um, completely make them assume the hardest cold chrome steel physically by isolation and having no interaction with anybody not in religious technology center. So the goal being that they would unquestioningly and unwaveringly execute and do
1: whatever David Miscavige said to do. Wow. Wow. So that was the whole reasoning behind the separate buses, the separation in apartments, Wow, yep. yep,
0: it was for David Miscavige's security so that nobody would know uh, what he was doing behind closed doors and that you know rumors wouldn't be spread about him it, it right. completely it was completely his paranoia. Wow,
1: that yeah. makes that makes total sense, yeah, yeah. well. Wow that's crazy well, uh, wow well, yeah. we, could go, we could go on and on because that yes. leads to more thoughts and questions <laughs> and <laughs> more stories
0: yes well we will do we'll schedule a part three but to conclude this one I have one question for you you ready? okay okay if you could talk to Shelly today what would you tell her?
1: <gasps> wow um, I would probably say that I could see who she really was when I got to know her in moments when she stole away to just be herself. And first of all, I would thank her for helping me in those bad times. But if she was in a position where she was entrapped, I. And she felt that she um, had to stay where she was. I would tell her that I would say, Shelly, you're such a strong woman. And no matter how you've been convinced that you don't deserve another life or you don't deserve better, you do. You have so much to give the world. And I would do anything I I could to help you start a new life.
0: Amazing. Thank you so, so much, Karen. <laughs> I, I, again, I'm just so grateful for your time today in talking about this and we will very definitely do part three in which you can ans- ask me as many questions as you'd like and we can compare notes on many other mutual experiences. How does that sound?
1: That sounds fabulous. I would awesome. love to do that. And may I ask the audience a question? Yes, go for it. Okay. Um, in the comments, I, I just really appreciate the comments after our part one. In the comments, I would love to know because Claire and I are um, obviously. We're really good communicating with each other. And I think we have so much to share that could help other people. Um, I'm just curious if anyone wants to comment, would they like to hear about um, additional topics? Um, And if so, if you don't want to say what those topics are, would you be interested in hearing about things like how we got in trouble and what was the cause of it and how we dealt with it. And these are things that might shock people. Would that be an interesting topic? I'd love to hear that. I'd love to hear that in the comments.
0: Amazing. So to everyone tuning in here today, drop us a comment below and answer Karen's question and let us know your thoughts. We will look forward to reading those. And thank you again, Karen. I will talk to you very soon until next time.
1: Bye bye. Claire, thank you so much. Until thank next you. time. Alrighty. <laughs> bye.